Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. My name is Serum. I live in Reykjavik, Iceland. I read The Guardian every morning. I realized that this is something that I would like to pay for. It's a service I value. It's journalism I respect. The Guardian brings me the quality I like. So I realized, hey, this is something I, I should be a part of. Hello, my name is Brian and I live in Norwich. I decided to become a supporter of The Guardian newspaper because I like the quality of its journalism. And I also felt it was time to make a stand because I'm getting tired of the journalism I'm seeing in other newspapers that are owned by rich owners, where there is a lot of bias into their editorials. I hope this inspires some of you to become supporters too, and in your own small way, make a stand. Hi, my name is Wesley. I live in uh, Utrecht in the Netherlands, and I recently decided to become a Guardian supporter because it's well one of the few news sources that I feel is still delivering accurate news. You know, it feels like I can trust The Guardian. For me, that's, I think, the most important thing. And especially when they said we don't want to do too much advertisements and we don't want to become dependent upon other people can, that can manipulate the news, I felt that it was good to support our democracy. If, like Sigrun, Wesley and Brian, you would like to join the growing number of readers who support our independent journalism, then go to gu.com slash support slash podcast. The Guardian. How do we encourage those with a high carbon footprint not to reproduce when they're the ones who have the greatest impact and the greatest sense of entitlement? I've always been quite conscious about the human impact on the environment, the fact that the human population keeps increasing and increasing, it's definitely not sustainable. Having those viewpoints kind of pushed me in the direction already that having children, well, if I don't really want to do it, I shouldn't do it. I'd rather not do it and hopefully that will have an impact on the environment. And the other aspect of that is how the environment is degrading and these impacts. Bringing someone to a world where they have to experience that, that is not really something I would want to do either. How can the Catholic Church continue to advocate strong action on climate change, yet actively block the safe access to contraception for millions of women around the world? Especially when last year over 170 Catholic scholars produced a statement saying there are no grounds at all to support the current Catholic teaching from the Bible or from nature itself. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of our We Need to Talk About podcast in which Guardian supporters set the agenda and ask the questions and our studio panel grapple with their demands. I'm Vicky Frost and that was just a snapshot of the thoughts and opinions of some of our brilliant contributors as they consider why this month we need to talk about population and climate change. We'll be hearing more from them over the next hour. We've had a tough time whittling down your many interesting and at times excellently provocative questions and points of view to a large handful of experiences and concerns that we'll be sharing with the panel shortly. We landed on this topic because so many of our supporters have been in touch to lend their support to The Guardian's expanded environmental coverage and to suggest we should be doing even more of it and ask that question. I suspect many of us have considered... What can I do as an individual that will have a meaningful impact on climate change? And earlier this summer, The Guardian published an article that provided something of an answer to that quandary. Headlined, Want to fight climate change? Have fewer children. It was shared more than 90,000 times and provoked a fascinating debate in the comments below the article. Most interesting to me was the conversation about who should be having fewer children. The presumption by some people that it should be women in the developing world, where there is a much higher birth rate, and the presumption by others that it should be women in richer places such as Europe, North America and Australia, where levels of consumption are much higher. And then there were those who took issue with the idea of overpopulation as an issue in itself. 
All of which meant it felt like it was a great time for us to talk about population and its impact on climate change. And who better to get into that discussion than my panel of experts today? I'm joined now by Damien Carrington, who, as The Guardian's environment editor, wrote that article about having fewer children, and Lucy Lamble, who is The Guardian's executive editor for Global Development, which means she often writes on and takes part in current debates on global inequality. You may be more used to hearing her on the monthly development podcast. Hello, Damien. Hello, Lucy. Hi. And alongside Damien and Lucy are John Vidal, the multi-award winning former Guardian environment editor, and Afwa Hirsch, a writer and broadcaster for The Guardian and Sky News, among others, who has also worked in international development and the law. Hello, John. Hello, Afwa. Hi. Hello. So, because I'm sure our readers will be curious, I know I would be very much if I was listening to this, I should say that we have a mixture of parents and child-free people in the studio, so I hope our debate today reflects a range of experiences. In a moment, we're going to take our questions from Guardian supporters, but to set things off on a sure foot, I hope, we're first going to get to grips with the research that prompted this discussion and talk to Kimberly Nicholas, who is a senior lecturer at Lund University Centre for Sustainability Studies in Sweden, bit of a tongue twister, and who is joining us by phone. Hello, Kimberly. Hi, Vicky. Thanks for having me. Kimberly was part of the research team who published a study this summer, subsequently reported by Damien, that said the greatest impact individuals can have in fighting climate change is to have one fewer children. Kimberly, I wonder if you could begin by talking us through why you decided to look at this particular issue. Sure. Well, this study was actually inspired by young people, starting with Seth Wines, who is the lead author. This research was a part of his master's degree, actually. And he used to be a high school science teacher. And he would get asked by his students all the time what they personally could do about climate change. So that was in his mind when he came here and studied with us, and uh, he wanted to find out. It's a question I get asked all the time as well. So we really wanted to be able to provide strong evidence for people who are interested in reducing their carbon footprint. What are the most effective ways to do so? So can you talk us through what your findings were? Sure. So we did a study of studies. We compiled 39 different sources, mostly peer-reviewed research and some carbon calculators where we couldn't find enough research to go on there. So we have a range of estimates. And we looked at the impact of choices that individuals in industrialized countries have the power to make themselves personally. And we wanted to know which ones were the most effective in reducing climate pollution. What we found is that there are four individual choices that are high impact in reducing emissions across the situations and countries and scenarios that are present today. And those were eating a plant-based diet, living car-free, avoiding air flights, and having fewer children or planning smaller families. Could you explain a little bit about how you calculated the impact of having a child on the environment? I was sort of interested in, in how you worked that out. Sure. So for all of the actions that we considered, we took a life cycle approach. So we tried to be as comprehensive as possible. That means, for example, when we're talking about the impact of dietary choices, we're looking at fertilizers and transport to market. If we're talking about a car, it includes manufacturing and driving the car, so burning fuel, as well as maintaining and disposing. In the case of a child, the way to calculate it from the study that we found looked at the birth rates today in populous countries and calculated those forward. So essentially, the authors there assigned carbon legacy or carbon responsibility for parents, for their children, and for their future descendants, based on the number of descendants they're expected to have at current population rates and so on. Kimberly, I just wondered, could you tell us about reaction to your study? Did that play like you expected it? Well, we got a lot of reaction. We heard from a lot of people. Some of my favorites were a 16-year-old girl in the U.S. who said she really appreciated having this information and something that her textbooks weren't telling her. That was also an important part of our study that we looked at government recommendations and high school science textbooks and found that they're not talking about these four bigger actions. Instead, they're focusing on much smaller actions like recycling that have a, a positive effect for the environment, but a much smaller climate impact. So uh, that was that was one reaction. I heard from new mother in Stockholm with a three-week-old baby who said she was putting the infographic we made up on her fridge to remind her what was really important and taking care of her child and determining you know, how they live their lives in a way that's compatible with a safe climate future for that child. There were also some people who weren't as enamored with the study, and we heard quite a bit from them too. Uh, panel, I wonder if you've got any questions for Kimberly at all. Sure. Hi, Kimberly. It's Damien here. Hi, Damien. Nice to see you again. Yeah. I just want to ask you, you know, as, as we spoke about before, this is a sort of deeply personal area in terms of you know, whether you become a parent or not. And I'm just wondering why you sort of chose to delve into that area. People might say, what business is it of yours? I'm wondering why you felt you should go ahead and do this. 
We really wanted to inform people's choices and inform the discussions that happen around what it will take to tackle climate change. And in Sweden, for example, a recent survey said 92% of people said it was important to live climate smart, but only 13% knew what they personally could do to actually do so. So we really want to inform people who are hungry for this kind of information of how they can spend their limited time and energy in a way that really makes a difference. Certainly for the choice of having a child, that's a deeply personal and individual choice. And I've heard from many people who appreciate having this information to inform that decision. But to think, of course, there are many factors to consider when individuals make that choice. This is Afwa here speaking, Kimberly. Um, I found it really fascinating. And I wonder how surprised you were by the findings, because I, I'm thinking of people where I live in South London who um, take huge care over their recycling and um, make carbon donations when they fly, but also drive huge cars and tend to have lots of children. And um, I suspect that, like me, they really didn't know the relative effect of th- these different measures can have. And I just wanted to know whether it did come as a surprise to you as well. Scientifically, For me, it wasn't a big surprise, the relative magnitude of these findings. So what we found is that, for example, the plant-based diet saves four times more carbon pollution than recycling, uh, avoiding one round-trip transatlantic flight like New York to London saves eight times more, living car-free saves 11 times more, and having one fewer child saves 275 times more. So obviously that's a really huge one. Um, And I think it's important because many people who do care about the climate and who want to be making good choices in that regard, recycling has really been emphasized and that's a big success story. So all of the government recommendations that we looked at mentioned recycling. It was the most commonly mentioned action in the high school science textbooks that we studied. And really the other actions that have a much bigger impact on the climate we're missing. So I think getting this information out there is important to inform people. And actually, we do have a, a supporter who asked us about how we could equate to, you know, get sort of same sort of cut through as recycling, who we'll hear from later in this podcast. So slightly hold that thought, Afwa, because we will be coming back to it. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for the opportunity. So we heard a little bit about response to the study there. Damien or John, I wonder if you might explain to us a little bit about why the question of overpopulation has proved so controversial in the climate change debate. As John here, it really is top of the league table of all environmental crises. And it's been swept off the map, I fear. And a lot of cowardice, a lot of ignorance, history of human rights abuses, liberal squeamishness to address serious issues, environmentalists hate of profligacy. It's a mega reality of the world today and yet nobody really in the north in the rich countries is looking at it. Nobody wants to look at it. And I do know that the environment groups out there, the Greenpeaces, the Friends of the Earth and all the others are very, very shy of taking it on. They're worried about religion, they're worried about the links to immigration, all kinds of sort of traditional right-wing stuff. So We've had radio silence for a very, very long time. I mean, a few people have been looking at it quite seriously, and I'm very, very glad. I thought that piece was excellent. The research was really interesting. I didn't know it. So I congratulate that. But it does need to be put on the agenda, as much for the northern countries as for some of the southern ones as well, I think. Actually, this is a good time then to hear from a Guardian supporter who has a particular interest in this area, Robin Maynard, who, as well as being a supporter, is the interim CEO at Population Matters, a charity that addresses population size and environmental sustainability. I asked him about why this was a difficult question to wrangle with. I've worked in good environmental organisations such as Friends of the Earth for many years and there are a few of us who wanted to talk about population issues for a good number of years but found it very, very difficult because colleagues would always say, no, no, Robin, we talk about consumption, we don't talk about population, don't mention the P word, all about us in the wealthy developed countries using too much and we are a small fraction of the world's population but we are an excessive percentage of the consumption and that is true but it doesn't really hold true still and there are many more countries where more and more people are rightfully becoming affluent and want to consume but as there are more of us more consumers and that consumption keeps going up despite the best efforts of friends of the earth and others to try and reduce people's consumption we find ourselves in a jam and we have to look at all the factors in the equation whether it's consumption or population or technology all of those impacts on how we put pressure or take pressure off the earth so yes i've i've found it difficult within and amongst my own friends and colleagues and in fact a few years ago we tried to sort of persuade the big green organizations from the worldwide fund for nature to 
Friends of the Earth, to the RSPB, all of them, to start talking about population. And it was really interesting because I'm, you know, I'm a long-standing greenie and I hope I'm compassionate. I hope I'm an internationalist in my outlook. But it was almost like, you know, we were bringing up this taboo subject. And, and initially people got quite angry with us for talking about this. And then they sort of denied it. And then at one point when we started producing documents to say, look, if, if I was working at Friends of the Earth still, or if I was working at WWF, this is how I would talk about population. We produced a sort of mock-up leaflet. We actually got sort of threatened with legal action for, you know, representing their name falsely. So well, we're just trying to show you and offer you an example of how you might talk about this difficult subject. So there are, there are real psychological, social, cultural, and even sort of species issues, barriers that come up when people mention the population world. I mean, we're brilliant at counting every other species on Earth. We have this wonderful living planet report that the Worldwide Fund for Nature produces, which tells us the state of nature globally. And we have the UK organizations producing a state of nature report here, which shows how everything is sadly declining. But we seem amongst the green movement to find it very difficult to count and consider the numbers and impacts of our own species. So we have a group of questions now from our supporters that touch on this issue. They want us to think about how the issues of overpopulation and consumption interact, basically. Here are Kevin, Mark and Carl with some questions for us. My name is Kevin. I'm from Canada. And uh, my opinion on the population issue is that I believe it's more of a resource allocation issue. I believe if you look at the world around us, we're not in a world of lack. We have quite a bit of abundance. And we look at our food and our amount of waste that we produce. And I really believe the problem is more about resource allocation. Population may be an issue at some point. I just don't think we're there yet. This sort of deflects focus off of societal change and puts the emphasis more on individual families having too many children, which is often poorer families than wealthier families. And so sort of a way to shift the blame away from more societal factors into individual shaming almost of poorer families. My name is Mark Jacqueline and I live near Paris. So invoking overpopulation for Westerners, is it not a way to put the blame on Africans who are expected to still grow importantly in the 21st century? when the population elsewhere in the world is expected to stabilize. I always debate on climate change, and I often notice that the people who have no agenda, who don't really care about it, they look for an easy answer, something that will get rid of the guilt that we can have as Westerners, because we are consume a lot, and in a way we are responsible for the environment burden of the planet including climate change. So the people, they tend to find a way of get rid of their guilt. And they find often that, oh, if the problem is overpopulation, there is nothing we can do about it. Do you think people use overpopulation as a way of meaning they don't have to engage with what they could do, that they make the problem someone else's? I won't deny that it's a huge problem, of course, that the problem is a pattern of consumption. My name is Carl. I'm from Sweden. My question to the panel is, how does population growth, living standards as it is today, and climate change interact with one another. At the moment, there's a portion of the planet who have very big carbon footprints for their living standards, while other, while other parts of the world, in the developing world, people have much smaller carbon footprints. And so I guess your question is slightly getting at the idea that if population rises in those developing areas of the world, and consumption does too, where does that get us to? The developed world that is the main cause of the environmental problems that we face. But one big problem is it seems like how the developed world lives and behaves and type of living standard that we have in the West is also somewhat a goal for many others. And I find that very problematic. It is we who have caused this problem. So essentially, we need to change how we live and what we can expect when it comes to living standards. So let's unpick those questions. I'm just going to bring them up together because I, I know there were a lot of questions in there. I think really what we're getting at is whether the issue is really overpopulation or overconsumption, whether if we reallocated resource we could solve some of those problems, and what it means for climate change as consumption rises in the developing world. Lucy, do you want to start for us? All good points from Kevin, Mark and Carl there. And there is obviously a clear crossover. But the one fundamental thing we need to do is stand back at this point and think, well, if a family has a, an extra child in a richer country, that child is inevitably at the moment going to consume more, typically, than a family in a poorer part of the world. And the, the basic question that's also awkward in addressing this is that 
we can't assume that, that everyone has the same level of information and certainly not the same level of access to services um, in all parts of the world. So you may be in a country growing up without easy information. You may be uh, stigmatised and uh, made to feel horrendous for having an inquiring mind you may not have any choice at all about what's happening to your body you may be forced into an early marriage and that there are all sorts of factors to take into account and clearly we're sitting here in London with regular easy free access to birth control and that puts us in a different position of empowerment when we come to make choices we're, in fact, we're going to hear from a supporter who works in that area quite soon to talk us through some of those issues around contraception. It's interesting, this idea of guilt, instead of having to deal with our own overconsumption, we can just say, oh, it's a population problem that's happening somewhere else. That's kind of interesting, isn't I it? I think it's really problematic. So I think, you know, from an African perspective, there's definitely a sense on the African continent that this is something that Western people come and lecture Africans about having too many children. And actually, one of the most perverse consequences of that is that it's given a huge amount of new life to this pro-life movement which is thriving on the African continent which is feeding on this narrative that these people are coming here with this imperialist agenda and telling us how many children to have the tragedy is the reality is if you go to rural parts of West Africa for example it's impossible to find a woman who doesn't say I wish I had more reproductive control at least spacing my children let alone reducing the number of children it's a real strain that women face and they don't necessarily have access to contraception but the problem is the narrative and it does often feel that West Western leaders are telling Africans to have fewer children and that feeds into a very problematic historical narrative. So when I heard Emmanuel Macron say that Africa has a civilizational problem with having too many children, you know, it's a kind of nightmare to hear a Western leader saying that. Sweden recently said that it wanted to support contraception in Africa to reduce migratory pressure on Swedish borders. So it's the idea that we need to stop Africans reproducing in case they want to come to our country. And it's the worst context with which to have a sensible discussion about population. And that's what I like about this study, actually, because it's looking in an objective way at the fact that having a child that's going to consume this amount of carbon is going to have a footprint. And I think that it's really important to look at that in an objective way and and, and try and get away from some of this very pejorative, loaded language about developing countries and the number of children people have there. I think that's right. So just to come in, it's Damien here. I think the reason this debate gets so heated is that in essence somebody's telling somebody else not to have a child and as Afua very eloquently just put out there that you know it can have very uh, bad connotations historically in in Africa I was in Tanzania a few years ago doing something on population and went to a poor district and the thing that struck me there as well as on top of access to contraception for women who want it was uh, education for girls and I met a bunch of girls who'd been thrown out of school aged 13, 14, something like that, because they'd become pregnant and there was a taboo that they would somehow infect their peers, you know, with some uh, immoral thing. And in, in Tanzania, you know, girls who didn't complete kind of secondary education have about seven children on average. Those who do complete secondary education have about two or three. And that's their choice in a sense that the idea of access to contraception and education for girls are ways in which people get to choose that the people we're concerned about about having large families they get to choose what they want which also addresses the population i just wonder if that's an area where everyone can kind of start to agree maybe john here i I completely agree but i mean having fewer children is actually part of the development paradigm so as people become richer then they tend to have fewer children and it's just a fact of life so um, so so actually there's a supporter we should hear from now who's talking exactly to that point well, I'm, just gonna, I'm, I'm just gonna i'm just gonna add on one tiny little thing it was, a, it was an anecdote i was up in the north of ghana where i was born actually and and i went to see the king of this tiny little area called lara and i said to the king how many children have you got and he said uh, i've only got eight and he said okay fair dues i said how many does your father have and he said he had 36 and i said okay and how many does your grandfather have and he said we stopped counting at 100 i said well why have you only got eight he said i can't afford any more i mean it was it's a, a pragmatic thing as people become more developed as development comes, then they cannot afford to have too many. So this great urbanisation which we're seeing at the moment, all the cities are growing exponentially, is actually reducing the number of children being born in most African countries. So it's a, it's a process. It's not a problem in itself, but it just needs to... I think many, many Africans would love to have fewer. And who am I to say people should but not I, have I any? think... Sorry, I know you want to bring in okay. and the next moment, but I, I think listening to this, it's becoming clearer to me that part of the problem is that in the African developing world context, it's the demographic dividend, it's the development 
developmental implications, whereas this study is talking about the climate implications. And actually, when you look at it from a climate perspective, like Lucy pointed out, control act more of a problem. Each extra child creates more of a carbon footprint at the moment in the developing country, obviously, because we consume so many more resources. So in a way, if the population debate could be more centered on climate issues rather than just development i think mm. it would it would go some way to reversing this this mm. narrative that we've had so far mm. yes and coming up is that question this seems like a good moment to hear from our supporter bill gannon he asks a specific question about whether the birth rate of developing countries will level off as they become more developed i think that's what you're alluding to john and um, whether that means ultimately the world population will stabilize in any case here's bill My name is Bill Gannon. I'm currently researching renewable energy at Swansea University. No one can predict the future that well. David Attenborough, he says all we need to do in order to reach 10 billion is for the current crop of children and teenagers to reproduce and we will be there because there are so many of them. Right. However, at the same time, in countries like Italy, the birth rate has fallen to 1.4, which uh, means that the population of Italy is declining. Now, in Britain, it's around 2.2. I believe it has gone up slightly, which is a worrying trend. But that doesn't mean it's going to be like that everywhere. And certainly as countries like China and India and the whole of South America modernize, their birth rate should start to drop rapidly. In China, it's it's always been like one. I think it's supposed to be officially one per family. But they're coming out of that communist era now. If we link, I mean, and I might be making a link that you're not, so do correct me if you don't make this link. As countries develop, the birth rate falls as countries develop, also everybody's carbon footprint becomes bigger, generally, with, with extra consumption. Tell me if those assumptions aren't, aren't yours. Does that mean, though, that we'll 10, 10 billion then actually becomes too much? Do you see what I mean? That even though the birth rate is falling, our carbon footprints are growing so we can support fewer people. Is, is that a thing? Yes. I mean, I think the next 50 years are going to be bad. As you say, when China and India come online and start using Western levels of carbon, we're going to have extremely large amounts of climate change. Now, that's going to be bad for humanity. Humanity will cope. The planet will definitely cope. The planet has been there before. I mean, the planet is one of its cooler periods over the last million years. You go back further, though, and we were much warmer. So we're going to go, be going back to that kind of level. But the things that will suffer, I think, are the wildlife and the wilderness so I wondered if we had any responses to Bill's point. I've got to be honest, I mean, I don't know whether the science behind what he's saying is correct or not, so I'm interested in, in responses. There's kind of two sides of the coin, right? So there's one is about the number of people and the other thing is about the level of consumption. And certainly if the people that come to live on this planet who go, take the global population up to 10 billion, if they all consume like Europeans, let alone Americans, at you know seven tonnes of carbon per person, like we're in deep trouble. You know, there's absolutely no way that can happen. As you know, John on the panel here and others will, will well know, in, in the global climate negotiations, the question of how nations which are developing can bring some level of prosperity to very poor people which is absolutely what everybody wants without going through that high carbon phase is really important and so in those negotiations countries like India have played hardball they've said listen you guys got fat and rich on carbon if you want us to not do the same thing you're gonna have to help us out here and that was where a lot of the tensions have come in that area so yeah both both things have to happen I mean I think in terms of population giving people the opportunity to have smaller families if they want them sooner rather than later is absolutely the key. We've definitely got a a pattern that that Afua referred to, the demographic dividend, where fertility rates do tend to come down when men and women have access to contraception and can choose to have fewer children. And you hope then you get smaller, healthier families with a a more financially stable environment around them. But that doesn't just happen. It may be an economic model. The economic growth needs to be happening in a context of a good health service, access to the education that might get you more opportunities for different choices of jobs and certainly a longer period of education when you're less likely to be in the early marriage, uh, early pregnancy scenario. And so having good health services and all these things matter. And if you're in a country which isn't uh, under good governance and uh, there's conflict or if you're a refugee, you know, how easy is it to have access to, to reliable family planning in those kinds of situations? So th- th- there is a picture around this. It's not quite as tidy as... But you know, we've seen positive examples examples in Asia and actually Bangladesh is a really interesting country to look at I think because actually it's one of the, the, the areas in Bangladesh where it slightly shows up India 
yeah. because Bangladesh has had a, a, an ongoing policy of being concerned about population. And we've definitely seen a trend of more women with more access to economic opportunities and more empowerment that goes with that. And definitely there, there have been some health consequences and uh, you know, it's, it's a positive thing for the country. John here. The big picture is that population has been growing exponentially over the last 50, 60, 100 years. And the figures for where it goes, when you break them down, it's really interesting. So there was a, a very interesting report from Canadian academics again last month, which was looking at individual cities. And if the growth rate continues in these cities, as it has been doing for the last 10, 20, 30, 50 years, where do they go? And it was quite extraordinary. So a city like Lagos will have 80 to 100 million people. A city like Naomi, at the moment very small, Niger capital, will become the seventh largest in the world. This will Blantyre in southern Malawi will have 36 million people, more than Lagos. So in other words, there is a sort of, once you start putting real figures in, and then you realise that all population growth has an effect on the environment, and it's usually pretty bad. And as our correspondent Bill in Swansea was saying, the wildlife and the mountains and the rivers, and they are the ones who are going to get it. Climate change is just a, a corollary of all that, but the environment will go absolutely inevitably if you get those numbers. It cannot help but do it. Africa's definitely had the most rapid population growth, but actually we mustn't forget the birth rates are dropping, and certainly that's very, very obvious in, in countries like Japan, and we've mentioned Italy already. And, and globally, women are having fewer children than ever before. It's just that there are more of us that are having the fewer children. The other irony, I mean, John earlier mentioned the, the human rights abuses that have been associated with, with these forced sterilisations and so on. And that's often happened to some of the most disadvantaged people in the world. Minority groups, the, the very indigenous people who might be preserving our, our forests and our rivers and be doing the best job of actually keeping us in a healthy ecosystem. Mm. So we're going to hear now from Sally, who is a Guardian supporter. She has first-hand experience of issues around contraception in developing countries. And then we're going to have a question about the influence of the Catholic Church in this area from our supporter, Angela. Sally Ferguson. I'm a British gynaecologist, but I have worked abroad since I was 30. I'm now in my middle 50s. There most definitely is unmet need for contraception in many places in the world. But one of the biggest issues is where there's poor contraceptive access and often uh, contraception is well done by agencies that also give access to termination of pregnancy. And certainly in many African countries, which I didn't really appreciate until I worked out there, abortion is illegal. I was applying for a job in northern Uganda and this area where I might have been working, women have five to six children. And actually when they were asked about what would their desire of number of children in their family be, it was three to four. Now obviously that's more than probably you and I would consider in Hong Kong or the UK. But even that is a substantial reduction in the number of children. And in Uganda, there is a perception that abortion is illegal. And I even looked up the wording of the legality, and it says that if a pregnancy is a risk to a woman's life, she can have an abortion. So what isn't well known is that safe, sensible abortion is actually safer than having a, a full-term pregnancy. I think as well you mentioned the damage done by Trump and his global gag rule. Yes. Could you talk us through that a little bit? Mr Trump's basically, he is removing USAID from any non-governmental organisation providing contraceptive advice because usually those organisations that provide contraceptive advice are also helping people with termination of pregnancy. So because he's stopping people getting contraception, he will also be stopping people from getting some sort of access to termination. And there will be more pregnancies. The more pregnancies that women go through, there will be more deaths due to illegal abortion. So the percentage of maternal mortality, women dying through pregnancy, is between 5 to 15%. That's a huge number of women dying. So when women die, you've then got children who don't have a mum. It's just a ridiculous situation. That's extraordinarily high, isn't it? Yes. Do you think discussion about population and climate change may be a way to tackle the question around contraception in developing world in a new way? Do you think it might raise it up the agenda, perhaps? 
it's just such a sensitive area. I was just reading something that Mr. Macron is interested in increasing French development help, and he says that women's rights are very high on the agenda. I think that's how it's got to be couched, because a woman's right to, to choose about her fertility, and therefore if she only has two children or three children, then they can afford to go to school then. Or if girls don't marry when they're 14 or 15, but they, for example, in Bangladesh, they move the marriage age up to 18. These kind of rules are essential to improve women's situation. So a focus on women's rights could deliver us a better outcome in terms of climate change? I believe so, yes. My name is Angela Terry. I live in Somerset. I am a practicing Catholic and I have worked in renewable energy for nearly 20 years now. My question is, how can the Catholic Church continue to advocate strong action on climate change, yet actively block the safe access to contraception for millions of women around the world especially when last year over 170 Catholic scholars produced a statement saying there are no grounds at all to support the current Catholic teaching from the Bible or from nature itself. And that was launched at the UN. Afwa, do you want to start our discussion here? <laughs> I was hoping you were going to ask me how to explain how the Catholic Church that supports a strong position on climate change whilst also not condoning contraception because it's, it's a pretty difficult circle to square in my opinion. I mean, I know there's a huge diversity of this among Catholics. And actually, not just to single out the Catholic Church, because in Africa, evangelical churches are also enthusiastically embracing a kind of pro-life agenda and saying that having large numbers of children is culturally an African thing and that anyone who advocates anything other is not acting in the interests of African people, which I find an anti-feminist and anti-climate argument that's really damaging and toxic. I was very interested to hear about the taboos about talking about this in a British context and in a developed world context because I never learned about this at school. I don't hear young women um, being encouraged to have discussions about how many children they would like to have and what impact that will have on the climate. We have all these very conscious young people who want to manage their carbon footprint who probably don't have access to this information themselves. And I personally think that if in countries like Britain we were more proactive in talking about how many children we have and reducing our carbon footprint it would be easier to talk to people in developing countries about it because at the moment it feels very much like us lecturing them about reducing the number of children they have whilst completely avoiding any discussion of it at home that's a really interesting point i should say we couldn't play it all because it was quite a long conversation but angela and i we talked about the impetus for catholics in the developed world to try and deliver that change to not just accept that that is what the church teaches on contraception and it doesn't really impact you because or me in britain you know i could ignore it and but that's not the case everywhere in the world so I think that question of sort of how you lead rather than just hand things down is kind of an interesting one Lucy again it's, it's, it's immensely frustrating obviously how slowly the Catholic Church is moving on this but I think we should acknowledge that in the last year there has been some movement the Pope did come out and talk about the benefits of spacing out between your pregnancies he referenced the, the issue that the Afwas brought up about ideological colonisation but he also said that we need to practice responsible parenting and here's hope that there will be more movement in that area. Coming back to the global gag rule, it's not just that that Trump's cut so significantly the funds going to support reproductive health advice globally, but it's also the fact that money's been withdrawn from the biggest UN agency worth, the UNFPA. And I don't think any... There are very, very few people on the planet think that would actively choose abortion as a a solution to these kinds of issues if we can avoid it. And, you know, the huge irony of these kind of policies is that actually it has, as far as I can see, the completely opposite uh, intention to which it, it sets out. Damien, you wanted to come in. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think it's just the Catholic Church. Quite a few of the, the world's great religions have problematic principles in this case. I was in Zanzibar, um, which is a devoutly Muslim country, and there was a widespread belief there that the Quran told people that they shouldn't use contraception. But I met some really interesting imams who were kind of looking at it, saying, listen, the Quran's a living document. We can interpret it now. It's 1,400 years old. But actually, when you look at it, you know, in the same way the Catholic scholars did. But I certainly share Lucy's, what should we say, frustration that uh, these uh, very old institutions seems to take centuries to move rather than uh, years. And John, and John here, I, I'm not a Catholic, but I, I remember reading the Pope's encyclical 
two years ago on climate. It was billed as on climate change. Actually, it was a fantastic exploration of consumption as well. So it wasn't really just looking at climate change. It was seeing climate change as the logical end of the consumption which the people in the North especially are practising. It was a condemnation, one of the most rigorous condemnations of the way we live now, especially in the North. It wasn't in a funny way directed so much at Catholics. I think it was directed much more at the American Northern European part of, of the world. But it was it was interpreted as climate change and, and fair dues, but it was, it was only a bit of it. Just when he made his remarks sorry, uh, on uh, family planning issues, it was quite telling, I think, that it was on, the, on a plane coming back from the Philippines which of course you know is a country with a very high birth rate and you know, it's not uncommon to in, in hospitals in Manila to find you know, multiple babies sharing a bed newborns just because of, the, of the, yeah. the rate of birth there and it's been incredibly hard to get through laws on reproductive health and sexual health advice and so on in the country but coming back to the Muslim question they're very encouraging to hear that teaching going on from that particular imam and I think Bangladesh is really interesting here because obviously it is significant Muslim population and they have shown that you can have this conversation without it having to be quite as taboo as it is in in, in some cultural contexts. That it is cultural as well as religious and actually just by complete coincidence yesterday I was in the British Library reading David Hume's essays for something completely different but I stumbled upon on the populousness of ancient civilizations, which is one of his essays, where he was lamenting the fact that the birth rate in England was far inferior to in the ancient times, ancient Roman Greece. And it was kind of talking about how it was terrible that soldiers aren't allowed to be married because it's really impacting our birth rate. So it was obviously of its time. But at the same time, it did make me think this is often linked to a sense of greatness as a nation. you know. And I think that that's something that affects many nations. And it's one of the reasons that we have these taboos around the subject. People don't want want to accept the idea of a declining birth rate. They like the idea of projecting future generations, populous future generations. And I think that's as entrenched here as it is in the Philippines or Ghana. So I would love to see us explore the nuances of the reasons that we're attached to having lots of children in in many different cultural contexts. I think that is a, it's a relevant factor. Well, we did have um, a lot of supporters who urged us to focus on reducing the birth rate in wealthier countries. That was a big focus because of consumption levels. And here are Dave and Claire who are wondering how those in the developed world can be made to understand the impact of their family choices. I'm Dave Gardner, director of the documentary Growth Busters Hooked on Growth and executive director of World Population Balance. I live in the middle of North America, the Colorado Rocky Mountains. And I'd like to know Do you think our society can reach the point where choosing to have fewer children as an essential carbon-cutting strategy is as widely understood as the strategies more commonly considered today, like conserving energy? And if so, how might we get there? It's Claire Bremner, and I'm in Glastonbury in Somerset in the southwest of England. My question was, how do we encourage those with a high carbon footprint not to reproduce when they're the ones who have the greatest impact and the greatest sense of entitlement. Damien, do you think having fewer kids will increasingly be understood as an action individuals can take on climate change? I think Kimberly, right at the start of the uh, you know, podcast when she came in, said, you know, people aren't given this information. Afua said the same thing. You know, people don't understand the scale of the impact that that can have. I'm going to take a slightly different note here as well to point out that changing population growth rates is quite a slow business. It takes time, it takes education, it's, it's, it's all the reasons we've discussed, it's a difficult thing. And actually, when you look at uh, you know, the rate of emissions uh, and how quickly we're going to have to reduce those, there's an urgency which can't be addressed only by population growth changes and actually you know the other things which Kimberley's study pointed out which are uh, things which also often NGOs don't want to talk about like eating less meat not driving your car not taking flights you know those are really big things that people can do and I think that um, people should definitely consider and understand the impact of having children but these other things are really important because they can you can do that tomorrow. Can I ask Damien something about this is Zafua here because i thought like that until I saw your article and I saw the infographic and it really shocked me you know because I've been vegan and I try really hard with all the things that everyone does like recycling and not flying unnecessarily thinking that I was making this great contribution but when I saw the relative impact of having one fewer child I thought surely we need to get really radical about this and, and, and not to in any way discourage people from all the other great things they're doing like recycling but 
wouldn't it be better rather than putting energy into those things to just put all that energy into radically trying to get people to urgently understand that if they have one fewer child that will make a radically different contribution to reducing emissions are you advocating a sort of china one <laughs> one child policy I mean, that is true i'm raising the question just based on the science of what the relative impact of these different things is is that is that what we need to do here yeah if you think like an environmentalist that really is the only way to do it you have to it, it, because it's cultural because it's religious, because it's so many different other, you have to take very radical cross-the-board action. There's no other way to do it. It's, I, I, I'm, I'm guilty. I put my hand up. I've taken more long-haul flights than probably most people in this room, certainly. And Well, no, actually, maybe not. <laughs> I haven't got children, but, but boy, have I racked up the, the air miles. You usually and, uh, claim that you're on planetary duty, John. Thank you. To less negroes, no, but, but it's, it's absolutely right. I mean, we're all guilty. I mean, there's nothing, there's, you know, it, it, it's a very, very serious problem. And then, you know, we could all probably reduce by 5% the amount of meat you eat, or by 10% the number of long-distance haul flights we do. But actually choosing to have fewer children, that is very radical. That is really important. It is, but and to answer Afa's question, I think absolutely the, the, the importance of those decisions is not understood very widely, I don't think. But because, in my opinion, you can't impose rules on people's reproductive choices, it, it's an information exercise. But that's not to say that these other things don't matter, right? You know, and the things that you mentioned that you try to do, they, they really matter. Because cutting emissions right here, right now, is, is so super important. You know, this is my job every day I look at these things and write these reports and realise you know that time is running really really short for these things you know. That's um, a stressful job it's like on a constant countdown. This well is, luckily I'm an optimist by nature but um, <laughs> the um, I mean the other thing to say is a lot of the discussion we've had so far is about personal choices absolutely that's what we're talking about but I think you know a role that people can play is by making sure that their representatives their politicians understand absolutely the importance agree. of this to them. You know, so we're, we're going to come back to this because okay. we have an actual question about that and first though we're going to hear from uh, from from some supporters who've chosen to be child free we heard from lots of people actually who wanted to tell us about the fact they'd made a positive decision not to have children because of climate issues but then they sort of felt their child free status was either judged or challenged or misunderstood or all of the above um so i'd really like to thank all of you who got in touch for sharing those thoughts with us and we're going to hear now from some guardian supporters who wondered how Child free living could be promoted as normal. That's my air quotes, if you know what I mean. I guess this is less about extolling the environmental benefits, perhaps, and more about societal acceptance of being child free as a positive life choice. Here are Michelle and Tetwe with a couple of questions around that. My name is Michelle, and I'm currently living in London. My question today for the panel members of the royal family, in particular Kate and William, most likely have a considerably higher carbon footprint than the majority of the population. We've just announced that they are pregnant with their third child. I'd like to know what impact do you think this has on the discussion about overpopulation? Um, and do you think they have a greater responsibility to set an example and have a smaller family? I'm Kit Wu. I live in Auckland, New Zealand. Given the evidence that having fewer children is the largest decision one can make to combat climate change, do you think our societies should switch from having a pro-reproduction stance where policies promote reproduction and society views having children as the correct choice to a neutral stance where having children is considered optional and policies are made to promote other means of having a fulfilled life, such as having a sabbatical if you're child-free to use up your parental leave entitlement. I thought that was a really interesting idea, that sabbatical. Is that something you are particularly interested in or particularly thought about? You may know that child freedom is becoming a bit of a choice for quite a few people. And there are groups out there which, you know, discussion groups and stuff. And this is an idea that I've seen promoted there. And I did think it was quite a, a good idea because I know for many people having children is something that makes their life fulfilled. But for people such as myself who've decided not to have children, you know, it would be good to have that time away, you know, it doesn't need to be maybe just once in your lifetime to explore other things in your life that you could do, want to try writing or art or something like that. I'm not saying it is selfish, but there are selfish elements to having children and not understanding the world that you're bringing them into. I feel like I've put a lot of consideration into it, so I do find it a little bit insulting when people just dismiss that I've made this choice as if it's the wrong one. I've always been quite conscious about human impact on the environment, the fact that the human population keeps increasing and increasing, it's definitely not sustainable. 
having those viewpoints kind of pushed me in the direction already that having children, well, if I don't really want to do it, I shouldn't do it. I'd rather not do it and hopefully that will have an impact on the environment. And the other aspect of that is how the environment is degrading and these impacts. Bringing someone to a world where they have to experience that, that is not really something I would want to do either. So that's a snapshot of some of the conversations I've been having with supporters. Really fascinating. Um, and I must admit, when Michelle first mentioned the uh, Royals in her email to us, I, I kind of thought a bit like, yeah, so what, the Royals? And then she really convinced me that actually th- this is important. They are in sort of a very influential position to say something interesting and different about about this. Um but um, and generally, I guess that that they are part of that thing of how societal norms are, are moved and changed. Um, so I guess it's about how how we can change that idea of what is normal. Those air quotes. Afwa, might you start on this? Well, just thinking about John, you know, asking about a kind of China one-child policy. I think I would prefer this to be about choice and education. And actually, I wouldn't I wouldn't have thought of the royals. But thinking about it, if William and Kate, who can afford to have probably as many children as they like. If they were to say, we wanted to have a fourth child, but we decided not to because we discovered the environmental impact that would have, I can't think of a more effective way of getting the message out there to people that this is something that you can do with a conscience because you care about your impact on the environment. And actually, you know, they do set cultural norms and these are the conversations that aren't happening and this is the leadership we're not seeing. So actually, I think that would be a really powerful thing. And I have a child and I find being a mother incredibly fulfilling. So I would never tell people that I I want to discourage them from having children. And I think that when we do start applying pressure on reproductive norms, it often disproportionately affects women and it feeds into some other dangerous ideologies. But I don't think we do have fair at the moment there is still this total taboo around being childless people who don't have children don't have the same kind of treatment and I think it's really interesting to suggest sabbaticals or other ways that you can allow people who have chosen of their own free will not to have children to maximize their sense of being fulfilled in other ways and we we do need much more sophisticated policies to address that I think both Michelle and Ted were sort of getting to that point when they were saying it wasn't that they had an overriding urge to have children that they then denied basically but it was like when they were thinking about this it became an element in their thinking if you know what I mean so it's not necessarily about control it's about just changing how your thought works on it. John? It's kind of a, a large repetition of um, what was being brought up in the 1960s. And China, the reason why China brought in the one-child policy was because it was absolutely scared stiff that it wouldn't have enough food for the one billion people, which was it was the thing. And so it became a cultural norm. And so the vast majority of families now have only got one child. And it's become quite normal. Now, OK, so it's going to be lifted. And a lot of people are saying they want two or three or they wish they had had you know, more. But actually, it became a norm where, which people just understood. And so it wouldn't actually be as radical. It would be radical to start with, but it wouldn't necessarily be radical after a while. It'd be quite radical to start with. <laughs> well, for you. I mean, I'm... I'm, I'm <laughs> I mean, if 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 China, why not? Why not here? I'm mean, for goodness' sake, because there's, there's a perfectly good reasons for only having one child. I'm in Damien. Sorry. Yeah, I, I just want to say I think Ted Wu kind of really put his finger on something, which is a taboo around childlessness. And I thought we saw a really good example in the UK uh, when the Conservative Party was uh, electing its last leader, where one woman, Andrea Leadsom, attacked another woman, Theresa May, for being childless mm. and saying, in mm. some way, she was deficient for that. Mm. And I think you know, as, as horrible as many people saw that nonetheless it kind of illustrated a, a taboo or a, a prejudice which goes with this and I guess what you can say is you can hope that like with other things like homosexuality or mental health um, you know these taboos can be eroded through conversation and information. I think it is about one in five between one in five and one in four women in Britain will not have kids I think it is that I think mm-hmm. I'm right to say that so it's a substantial number mm-hmm. of people. Afwa. I was just going to say, I am um, instinctively very uncomfortable, having said that I think we need to lose all these taboos, and I'm very uncomfortable with the state dictating reproductive policy, just instinctively. I just feel that it can go wrong in so many ways. Um, and I wouldn't hold China up as a great example of the human <laughs> rights benefits of having a one-child policy. So, but, although I hear what you're saying, John. But I, um, but I, I, do, I do agree with that. And I think, um, I think this is one of the areas where we really haven't matured, actually, in Britain as a modern democracy. You know, our, our conversation around reproductive health and choice is still very old-fashioned, I think. There's this instinct to reproduce that's not 
grounded necessarily in real choice and reason and you know when people ask you why you haven't had children yet when you haven't had any children and it's not a question based on your personal decisions and who you are and what your interests are it's just this assumption that you know something's gone wrong for you or you don't get it and you need to be brought in line and that pressure and maybe exists in some communities more than others but I think it's very real I think any woman in her 30s who has not heard that question has not been listening because you know I I do think it's very widespread and it's women by the way as well not men who get I mean it, it it does exist for men the concept of childlessness but I don't think in the same way I think that it's I, I don't think you are judged as deficient it's not a, a judgment on your character if a man, as a man you haven't had a child I can't imagine that Andrea Ledson Theresa May conversation having happened between two men one with a child and one without so to come on from your point about personal choice state provision all of that in this podcast we've talked a lot about what we need to do and the positions it would be desirable to get to but I think there is a question about who is responsible for instigating those changes whether the big question is population or consumption how are we going to see real change I thought our supporter Mike had a good question here and we're also going to hear again from Tetwu. I'm Mike Lakovich from London. My question is, how do we get politicians to talk seriously about the links between population growth and climate change? In the UK, in the last three elections, they've barely mentioned the environment. Why? Do you have thoughts on why not? A number of reasons. Cultural in some cases, religion in others. It's something that politicians don't see as winning them votes, even though the majority of the population are concerned about environment that doesn't translate into short-term electoral advantage. Do you think that's partly because people are happy to see it as a personal responsibility rather than a governmental one? Probably the majority of people would either see it as being a government responsibility and not there. (laughs) But I would like to think an increasing number of people feel that it's both personal and government and business responsibility. And what I, I would say is that I think most larger businesses now take climate change extremely seriously and far more so than government ministers. Is the case you think that for politicians there's just too many unpalatable truths? Yes, I think some people see it as potentially asking people to give up something rather than engage or, or benefit from it. People find it uncomfortable because it's something that's perhaps associated with countries like China, where they had a one or now two child policy, telling people what to do in their private lives is not something that the British public or indeed many Western democratic countries are comfortable with. It's kind of quite a taboo subject. I think most politicians and political parties really shy away from even being child neutral. You know, they feel like they have to be very pro-family, pro-children and policies often for good reason. You know, obviously, if there are children, you want to make sure they're taken care of and stuff like that. But I mean, the classic argument about how you you need to replace your population and increase your population for economic growth. I think those kind of ideas really have to die. The reality is if there is a lot more older people the answer isn't having more younger people to solve that solution. The answer is, you know, using technology or whatever to find ways to solve it and advances like that, not saying, oh, the only way to solve it is making sure we keep producing enough young people to look after old people. I don't think that's a real proper solution to that issue. So, Damien, because I cut you off when you tried to talk about politicians before, let's start with you on this question. Why don't politicians engage? Could they? Could we get them to the point where they do? Sure. I mean, I've spent a lot of time uh, talking to politicians and the the ones who deal with this when they're talking honestly say, I don't have enough people telling me I need to get this stuff done in government. You know, Uh, I remember one of them saying, you know, what do we need? I asked him, what do we need to really tackle climate change? He says, I need a million people on the street. That's what I need. I think politicians are often followers. We think of them as leaders, but actually, to a large degree, they're followers. They give people what they want because they want to get re-elected. And so a good example at the the moment in the UK is the lack of action over air pollution. As it stands, my take is that the government's more afraid of diesel drivers who'll be angry um, about not being able to drive their cars than they are about people who are worried about what they're breathing in. And that's an example of, unless there's the public pressure, unless people tell their politicians, these are really important, these are in effect how I vote... I don't think they'll move forward. I mean, let's give them a little bit of credit. Every government in the world, bar the US now, 
and Syria have signed up to the Paris Climate Change Agreement. At the very top level, the kind of broad brush, kind of long distance plans, everybody's on board for that. But where the rubber hits the road, if you like, in terms of actually making decisions from one year to the next about what gets done, you know, they, they need public pressure. Politics, oh, Lucy. And, yeah, politics really does matter. So please, you know, when you're thinking about who you're going to vote for in your constituency, ask the candidates what they're going to do to encourage sustainable development in your area. Um, ask them about the right kind of jobs and you know what, how much they think about the kinds of development that we're pursuing globally. Thinking about, you know, are they going to be funding good quality health systems locally to you, but also do they agree in investing in health systems elsewhere in the world? Do they agree with funding access to family planning? That's a fundamental. Uh, so we, we can certainly, uh, these are big political decisions and there's some really skewed and unpleasant political decisions that have been associated with this issue and we've talked about some of them were historical ones but even this week uh, the the government of, uh, in Assam state in India has has made this uh, interesting decision whereby it's limiting the number of uh, babies that government employees are allowed to have to two and uh, in the current uh, context in India that has a very definite uh, whiff of deciding who might be a government employee and you know, it does definitely feel anti-Muslim in, it, in its uh, assumptions. But plenty, sorry, John, John. Here. Uh, plenty of governments uh, could and I think have done over the years given tax breaks for people who've got fewer children or more children. They can swing it in different ways if they want to. As Damien says, they do need encouragement. But it doesn't have to be a sort of Chinese diktat. No, It can be done far more subtly. It can be done far but, more interestingly. It's through encouragement and carrots rather than... I think than that's really interesting because in the UK there has been a proposal from some in the Conservative Party that child benefit, which is a you know, state benefit paid to parents, should be limited uh, to the first two children. Like if you have more children than that, you don't get the benefit. And that's been incredibly controversial. uh, That's that's fascinating. I mean, yeah, because I wonder if if it was... Because, of course, it's not couched in terms of climate change. It is couched in all sorts of quite horrible kind of aspersions about who you are if you have more than two children. But it's interesting about whether if that was a total rethink, that would be more palatable or not. I mean, I suspect possibly not. You but, need a yeah. safety net to uh, to avoid child was, poverty. Well, course, I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> I, I can understand why that's controversial because the kind of people who are dependent on child benefit are always going to be lower income people. Um, but that's a whole other discussion. But I would like to ask Damien and, and I guess maybe John as well a question because what we was saying about we need to move away from this idea that you need a higher birth rate to sustain a, an aging population. And he said, you know, we should stop doing that and look at technology instead, which sounds great. But um, I think if we have the solution to how to sustain a, an increasingly older and more expensive population, well, then we maybe wouldn't even be having this discussion. What, like, what's your perspective? Well, all of you and you, Lucy. What is your perspective on how we can encourage people to have fewer children while also solving the problem of how to pay for an ageing population? Japan has, is obviously having to address this quite urgently and uh, one of their areas of interest obviously is automation and you know, goodness knows what AI is going to be uh, uh, producing in the years to come but uh, the one thing that perhaps Japanese society has been quite resistant to is making the most of the movement uh, of people around the world and uh, it's not that we're short of people in the world and people are having to move for all kinds of pressures and you know, maybe, I'm not trying to do some kind of big chess game here but clearly there are movements of people and perhaps we should start to think a little bit more intelligently about what mm. that could mean positively. We're really yeah, open absolutely. to immigration right now. Mm. Well, that's, <laughs> the, no, that's the point I was going to make. Like, Lucy was being terribly polite there, you know, but uh, the fact is in the UK, which you know, has a relatively low birth rate and a fastly, uh, rapidly ageing uh, population, the care of those older people is to a very large extent provided by people who've come to this country from elsewhere. And as uh, Afa alluded to there, you know, the kind of debate around Brexit and the levels of immigration to the UK has been a really toxic one. I think the Japanese are kind of coming up with like robots who can be companions for older people and maybe help. I think that's going to solve the whole problem. I agree completely. There are many countries now which have a declining populations. Japan, Italy, uh, most of Northern Europe is, is actually again, ex- expected to reduce numbers significantly. Britain, although I think it's actually got quite a high birth rate, especially in Europe. So it, it varies from country to country in the dynamics of what, what, what makes 
vast numbers of mothers in, in Italy or Japan not have children is fascinating. I, mean, I, I, I don't, We haven't cracked it. I, I don't know how it's, how it's going to happen, but it, it, it seems to be happening in many rich countries. And whether that's by design or by default, I, I have no idea at all. We're just going to come to our last question now. This is Claire, who we heard from earlier. And I think she has a question that probably goes to the heart of this matter. It's a very difficult one to answer, I think, but it's where we should finish the debate. It's that essential question of whether a rational decision, whether to have fewer or no kids for the sake of the environment, can ever really override the biological imperative to do so if you have it. Here she is. So I noticed in my family and friends and contemporaries who did have children, immediately the need to protect and to enrich the lives of their own offspring overrode lots of other values they'd had previously. And when I saw really determined mothers standing up for their children and riding roughshod over other people in order to make sure that their children got what they thought they were entitled to, that was when it came together for me. It felt as though that biological drive just squashed everything else. That all those years we'd spent learning about what wiser heads of ours had thought just went out the window. So I think people are enthralled to their biological drive. But not everybody has it as strongly. Uh, and it's, if the people who don't have it as strongly don't reproduce, then that will go some way towards solving the problem. Any thoughts, panel? <laughs> I think that there are many different reasons why people have children. There are people who have children, they feel it's part of their purpose in life, but not everybody who has children does it for that reason. And um, as we were saying earlier, there's still pressure, people who don't necessarily want to have children who do because of social pressure. What was, came into my head when I was listening to Claire was we can all control that in a chip. There is something very primal and not rational about the desire to have children, but we are rational social beings who can overcome some of our urges in the interests of the collective good. And I mean, I don't think we should surrender to the idea that we just can't control these desires and these drives. And I say that as somebody who loves being a mother and wouldn't like to change that. But I, you know, I think about having more children, both from a biological drive perspective and from a socially responsible perspective. And having read Damien's article and now the report, I will think even more carefully about the impact of having future children. And I think we're all capable of thinking like that. I agree absolutely completely. I mean, we don't need to have lots of children. I'm perfectly happy not having children. I love children. My friends' children are the best children in the world and my godchildren, all that sort of that. There are plenty of ways you can enjoy life to the absolute full without having children of your own. I mean, owning children, well, that rubbish. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, particularly in today's world. But no, God bless the children and may there be many, many more of them. Well, that really does seem like the moment, <laughs> the moment to close on. So with that, I'd like to thank the panel, Lucy Lamble, Afua Hirsch, Damien Carrington and John Vidal, as well as Kimberly Nicholas from Lund University. Thank you all. And I'd of course like to thank all the Guardian supporters who provided our question and shared your thoughts. Thank you for your generosity and your time. I hope you feel like we addressed some of the issues that you thought were important. If you'd like to contribute to our next podcast, you can of course sign up to become a Guardian supporter. Just head to membership.theguardian.com for more info. And if you're already one of the hundreds of thousands who support our work, thank you. And do keep an eye out for the next podcast call out, which will be in the next couple of weeks. If you'd like to email us with ideas for what topics we should tackle, you can do that at we need to talk about all one word at theguardian.com. I've been Vicky Frost and we need to talk about Population and Climate Change was produced by Stuart Silver and Rowan Slaney. Until next month, goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.